Father in heaven, we ask for the Holy Spirit that was just sung about in that last song, the the one that Jesus said the Father would send, and that he would be a comforter and that uh, he would bring us enlightenment and understanding. We pray for that, Lord, because our times are challenging and we don't have all the answers. Help us, Lord, to be your people in this time and help us to understand your spirit, not attribute your work to anyone else, but to always be open. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got uh, this week and next week, we're going to continue on this topic of the Holy Spirit, and next Sabbath will be a little different. I'll say a little more about that at the end. But today, one more day to look at some texts related to the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I I want to address right at the front here today uh, one element, something that sometimes happens to us because we live in what we like to think of as an enlightened time, a time where we don't just assume that the world is full of mysteries, We assume that if something happened, there was a cause. And if we will just keep working at it and looking, we will eventually figure out a rational explanation for just about anything that takes place. Now, this is a product of our heritage coming out of the the Protestant Reformation that led into, uh, into the Enlightenment in a time of of scientific discovery, when it was in fact proven that the fact that it's going to be a nice warm day today but might snow on Monday is not just a fluke. There are natural explanations as to why that happens. And through this process of, of, shall we say, demystifying life, pandemics don't just spring from nowhere. There are things called viruses and there are things called germs. All of these things that we figured out and then found ways to address have served to, in a sense, demystify our notions of reality. And so when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, it is in some ways foreign to our general context of reality because We're suggesting here that there is a force at work in the earth that we cannot see and for the most part cannot hear, yet we are claiming this force gives us gifts, there's fruit in our lives, that that it changes our experience. And that's all pretty good and well as long as it's a hypothetical discussion out here. Then throw in the context of of, uh, different approaches to spirituality and and we have been, by and large, a people who have put a, a strong emphasis on the concept of truth and the construct of truth and the importance of truth And we have at times had maybe less than a perfect attitude towards others who we might have dismissively referred to as 
charismatic and tended to want to typify certain behaviors as irrational or emotionalism or over the top. And there's, there's a case to make there for sure. There's also a case to be made about cold formalism. I think sometimes we have lived with maybe a conscious, maybe an unconscious, in, in, a, in a conscious or unconscious state of Holy Spirit paranoia. What do I mean by that? Well, it takes multiple forms. One of the forms is, is let's call it glorification of the genius of the past. If we as Seventh-day Adventists are very serious uh, about our background, there were a lot of ways that, that our forefathers and foremothers of the faith approached their faith that we might find a little unusual and possibly a little bit uncomfortable. For one thing, we've reached a comfort zone, or at least most, with the idea that there was a woman, not unlike any of us, by the name of Ellen White, to whom the Lord spoke directly. And as a result of that, in that prophetic uh, role, she had things to say that were significant and, and, and were comfortable with that because those things that she said are now written in books. And we can take them out as books and look at them as books and, and perceive in them the voice of God speaking. But I don't think we'd be so keen if there was someone in our day experiencing visions and supposedly speaking with authority. We would have a term for that. And it might be something like crazy. You see how comfortable we are with that? Can you imagine if we had to discern it in our own day? Would we be able to decide, yes, this is a genuine prophet, or no, this person is crazy? Could we make that call? And how much would we be inclined to go to the story of, well, you know, when she was young, she got hit in the head with a rock. That might explain it. See, we got a paranoia here. It's okay for God to work as long as he's not working right now. But yet, we're sure that what he did in the past is, is so important. It, tying into this idea, another part of our paranoia is a suspicion of anything new. If they used to do it that way, it must be holy. Well, that's true to a point. But it's kind of funny if you go back and look at the history. And this, this will come up lots of times as as churches are, are wrestling with different issues of transition as generations shift and so forth, uh, there is a context that says uh, four people singing in unison um, in something that was written a long time ago, 
is actual worship, and anything that's from the last 30 years is, is just uh, rock and roll music. You know, you, you still get that. that. That a keyboard is fundamentally dangerous, but an organ, that's all right. We're suspicious. We have another thing sometimes. I would call it source fixation. The idea here is if the concept or the teaching or the word or whatever is coming from a source that I know that someone has told me is okay, then it must be good. But if it's coming from a source I don't know, it must be bad. Okay, well, on the one hand, maybe that is a good place to start in our consideration. Realize this. Trusted sources can be wrong. And unusual, unexpected sources can provide truth we would get no other way. What do I mean by this? Well, we sometimes do this with the Bible and we get into funny little arguments with the Bible. For example, the books Genesis to Deuteronomy have, have historically been attributed to Moses. But are those books important and definitive to us because they were written by Moses? Or are those books important and definitive to us because they contain truth we need to know? You see, it's very hard for any kind of a writing to survive for the length of time that these writings have survived, and somewhere along the line, they're not to have been edits and so forth. Does that make them invalid? If someone were to prove that Moses did not literally sit down and write every word, does it make it invalid? You see, this is, this is source dependency. And if it's true, what are you going to do with the book of Hebrews? Because we're not even sure who wrote it. Is truth true because of who said it? Or is it true because it's true? And is it even fair for God to expect us to be discerning? There's an issue here that I think even relates to God himself. Is, is God the authority because he has all the power? Or is God the authority because he has the righteousness? Jesus makes this statement, Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, whatever Jesus says, is it right because he has all the authority, or does he have all the authority because what he says is right? Which comes first? I would argue, as you wrestle with that question in your mind, I would argue that the incarnation of Jesus 
suggests very strongly that authority should be based on demonstrated righteousness, not coercive power. And I think that this is what the author of Hebrews, whoever that exactly might have been, was getting at in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, when he, assuming it was he, wrote... Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's writing to the Hebrews, and he's saying to them, we have this history of these scriptures that we have concluded this was God speaking to the prophets. And through the prophets, the prophets spoke to us through the words of these scriptures. But he goes on. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, these are very important words. What he's saying is, we had a revelation from before from God in these written words mediated through humans. And it was good... But now the best has come. The best revelation of God is the reality of Jesus Christ who lived and walked. And this is why if we are looking to understand the nature of God, the first place we must look is the life of Jesus. And it is through the life of Jesus then that we go back to everything that came before and reconsider it in the context of God's clearest revelation. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God. And he is the starting point of Christian faith. Christian faith doesn't start with a philosophy of God. It, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't start with some sort of a logical construct. Christianity starts when we're convicted in our hearts that this man who lived on the earth 2,000 years ago was in fact God's son and the Messiah. This is when you become Christian. And it is from that standpoint then that you consider all things backwards and all things forward through the life of Jesus. Going on in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. After making purification for sins, he, the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the author of Hebrews is saying to us, the clearest revelation of God came in Jesus. And after he had accomplished God's purpose, he took his place in heaven beside God. Now, jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, let me pause right there for just a second, because the case the author is making here is saying 
A message came to us through angels. This is his way of saying, this is how the prophets got their words from God. The angel messengers, the angel means, the, the Greek word means messenger. So, so that's what's being suggested here. It was through angels that the word to the prophet was mediated. And notice what he says. He says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... How is the authority of the message of the prophets proven? It was proven through time. It was proven through experience. The words that they spoke, that they spoke to the prophets, it came about. It was proved to be reliable, and every transgression or, or disobedience received a just retribution. Going on verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is the basis that he is claiming that we can put our confidence in the reality that Jesus was who he was? Well, first of all, trusted people told us about it. Secondly, it was confirmed by signs and wonders and then also by gifts of the Holy Spirit given according to his will. The gifts of the Spirit that you have, that God has given to all believers, is a part of the evidence of the reality of the story of Jesus Christ. And when you withhold it, when you don't use those gifts to the glory of God, it withholds the message of Jesus, the fullness of that message. We are all called to a purpose. But now I want you to notice something about this passage that's interesting because it actually says two things at once. How do we relate the first part that says we need to be careful not to drift away, which suggests it's very important to maintain orthodoxy, but then the passage points out that we have to stay open to the witness of God that he gives through signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit. How do I not drift and yet be open? Well, one solution that many Christian communities have, have accepted, have embraced to try to deal with this tension is that at the, at the end of the time of the apostles, God had given us everything he was going to give us and, and if we just figure out perfectly what reality was supposed to be at that point, then we have everything we need. But there is no further revelation. There is no further growth. The canon is closed. The voice of the Spirit no longer speaks. This is where it is. And there are a lot of those people in the early days of the Adventist church that were very hostile towards the Adventist church because the Adventist church claimed to have an a prophet amongst the people. And this was anathema to this idea that gave them security to say, no, 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 it's all here already. We shouldn't be looking for anything else, which laid the foundation for the founders of this church to adopt a different mentality where they said, we will not establish a creed because as soon as we do, we're locked. Which is a little uncomfortable when you realize we kind of did. But they said, we will not establish a creed because as soon as we do, we're locked. 
And we're going to call what we believe not truth. We're going to call it present truth. So here's the unsettling thing we have to deal with with that term. If the present truth you're embracing in fullness was the present truth of 1850, is it still the present truth? It's uncomfortable. How do we not drift away, yet stay open to the leading of the Spirit? Is it orthodoxy? Or is it experience? What guides us? Well, while we wrestle with that, let's go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 24. This is the story of the man born blind. We, we spent a great deal of time on it. We did a whole sermon on it last year. But I just want to pick this part out of the story. He's been healed. He's now called before the Pharisees. He's being challenged. Verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus there. He answered, the man born blind, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Somebody's laying a hold of experience here, right? Saying, you know what, I don't know about all that. But I can tell you what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? Oh, now he's just getting needling, isn't he? That's just wrong. Listen to their answer. And they reviled him. That's always a good start when you're in authority. If someone challenges you, revile them. All right, maybe not. Maybe not. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. All right, do you see perfectly illustrated here this conundrum we're talking about? They are desperately reaching back for orthodoxy. We are disciples of Moses. We're sure God spoke to Moses. How do you know that? Well, we've had it confirmed all these years. And the people we care about told us. And this is the message that's come down to us. We are faithful to Moses. Now, that's not completely wrong. But unfortunately, in this case, it's completely missing the point. Because they're allowing, they're, they're clinging to their understanding of orthodoxy to literally blind them to the reality that's taking place in front of them. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Clearly in this story, in the battle between orthodoxy and experience, you wanted to be on the experience side. Because a new reality was being revealed in their very presence. But let me also say this. It is dangerous to chase after everything that claims to be God. 
Not every person that walks in and tells some crazy story about something that happened is actually telling a true story or is actually representing it the way it really is. They may not even know if they're misrepresenting. It's dangerous to chase after everything that claims to be God, but it is even more dangerous to deny what really is God's working and to misattribute his work as the work of his enemy. And this is where we have to be really careful when we get any kind of a, of a conceited notion related to other Christian communities. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. All right, right off the top here, I want to suggest to you that you're only comfortable with this story because of the context that it's a Bible story. If this actually took place in our presence, there's so much about this we would be uncomfortable with. For example, how many of you, if you encountered a blind, mute person your first assumption would be, well, clearly they're demon-possessed. No, my mind doesn't go there. Not at all. Now, I might be inclined to blame the devil, but it's wholly another thing to suggest that the person's issue is demonic and not physiological, because I live now when we understand why people are blind, and sometimes we understand why people are mute. But that attitude might have gotten me in a little bit of trouble in this story. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. But... How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, <clears throat> then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know what would have made me way more comfortable here? If Jesus would have just said, no, 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 see, you got this all wrong. He's not demon-possessed. He has a physiological issue. And I'm going to take care of that physiological issue, and it's all going to be okay. But no, he doesn't go down that road at all. He takes on the demon road. He goes down that road, and, and, and he points out that, uh, th that it's irrational of you to think that the demons are casting out the demons. That's not what goes on. But then... I think if I'd been in the crowd, 
I would have found these words to be sobering, but not necessarily satisfying. What I hear Jesus saying is, your logic is flawed. The devil does not cast out demons. But then he says, but you're going to have to decide what you think is really going on. Do you hear how he says that? He says, but if, I, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the Spirit of God has come upon you. And I'm sitting here thinking, has the Spirit of God come or not? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Has it come or not? Jesus continues, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it is at this point, had I been there that day, that it would be coming clear, be coming clear to me that orthodoxy is not going to serve me well in this scenario. That my initial perception of what's going on is not going to help me, but now it's really going to get scary. Verse 31. Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Yikes! Can you say unpardonable sin? Blasphemy against Jesus is not it. But to apply the working of the Holy Spirit to the devil is. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because are you sure every time you know exactly what the Spirit is doing? Did, really, did Jesus really just say this? What I hear in these words is this. To attribute a working of God to the devil is the worst sin you can commit for it is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what that makes me want to do. Suddenly, I want to be very humble the rest of my life and not all sure and judgy about what I claim to know about God and his working. That one makes me want to be real careful. Really watch my mouth really guard my attitudes. This is an unsettling condition that we find ourselves in. What can we trust? Experience? Well, sometimes. Orthodoxy? Well, sometimes. Am I really going to have to live my life with discernment? Can't someone just hand me the rules? Or do I actually have to live this life every day seeking to discern the will of God? Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. 
Is this passage suggesting that we should spend more time focused on outcomes than we should on forms? See, it's easy to criticize forms. But the irony is there are a lot of very orthodox forms that are producing an outcome of believers that are anything but reflective of the character of Jesus. And it seems that there are some forms that in my mind might seem a little questionable that are creating really good people. What do I do with this? Sometimes orthodoxy produces Pharisees, but sometimes deconstruction produces self-centeredness. Is this why I need the Holy Spirit in my life? Matthew 12, verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, reminding me to be humble and very careful with what my mouth says. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It ought to give us pause, at least, if not, in fact, significant reason for soul searching. What is in my heart? And what is coming out of my heart? Paul has a contribution to make at this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's the same kind of thing Jesus is saying here. A good tree produces good fruit, a temple filled with God's spirit produces good. Paul goes on, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Who are your favorite authorities? Are we boasting more in their words than in the words of God? Are you so sure that those who came before you knew, so sure that you equate their conclusions to righteousness by default? Do you think that so doing will excuse you from your present day responsibility to, do you remember this one? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what happens? 
all these other things are added? Are you beginning to see why we need the Holy Spirit in our lives every day? Are you wise enough? Can you discern all things? How do we become the good tree? How do we become the temple of the Holy Spirit? Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does this mean? Well, I think in the simplest form, what it's saying is, whatever you're filling yourself with is what you're going to become. Now, sometimes we've gotten kind of out of balance on this theme. And in an effort to do good, we've tried to establish certain rules that, that we try to enforce, and, and often the enforcement is spotty or inconsistent, or, or eventually the rule itself becomes irrelevant or foolish. Uh, a, a perfect example of this was uh, back in the days when I was young. I, I grew up in the era where going to the movie theater was transitioning out of the worst sin you could ever commit to no one cared. There used to be sayings in my day that, that your angel waited for you outside when you went in. Now, we meant well, <laughs> but man, that's pretty foolish stuff. But here was what was funny about all of that. You couldn't go to the movie theater because it was a bad place. And then they invented videos. <laughs> and you took that very same reality that was supposedly bad there and imported it into your house and watched it at home. Totally fooled the angels. They didn't know to abandon you. No, see, you see what happens to us? The point never was the setting. The point was the content. But it was so much easier to make the rule about the setting. And now we stream the whole world into our houses. Here's, here's what happens. Let me tell you what happens to me. I, I have tried to cut myself off from those sources that, that are clearly unhealthy for me. And I know this by experience. But then I have an iPad, and on that iPad, I have a Facebook app. Now, I'm older. I don't have, you know, I'm a Facebook person. I don't have those other things that younger people have. So I'll just tell you the story as I know it. And I go on this Facebook app, and I have all these friends, and they have all these things on there, and I look at their pictures, and it's, and it's amusing, and it's fun. And every now and then, one of them posts a little video or something. And it looks interesting. And, and so, so I click on it, and it comes up, and the little video runs. 
and it's charming, and, and usually my friends are, are, you know, reasonably reliable, that they're not putting anything on their page that's totally inappropriate. But when I do it on my iPad and I click on this little thing and this little page comes up, all of a sudden, Facebook goes, oh, you like that? And boom, suddenly below it is another video. And I don't even have to scroll up. As soon as this video is done, it'll pop right up there. I don't know if yours works this good, but that's how mine works. And I, I start watching that next thing, and it's kind of funny. But it wasn't posted by one of my, one of my friends at some other source. And, you know, after a while, I, become to, I begin to get concerned as to how Facebook views me with some of the things they suggest that I'm interested in. And how easy it is for that little stream to become a torrent of messages coming into me that are not good for me. So I don't know what your sources are, I don't know what your experience is, but at the end of the day, if I've spent a whole lot of time doing that, I'm not necessarily peaceful and, and, and full of the fruit of the Spirit at that point. Now, I'm not saying any of these things is in and of themselves wrong. What I'm just saying is, if, if, I'm, if I'm filling myself with this content as opposed to other things that would be healthier for me, where am I going to end up? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, reap, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are several ways we can look at this. Let's, let's take it personally first, and let's, let's go physical on this. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We are living in a day where the world is full of, of people who are facing difficult health scenarios because of lifelong decision-making that has, in an unhealthy way, sowed to the flesh. That can result in a lot of things. Obesity, it can result in diabetes, it can result in all kinds of situations where if you're a physician or a nurse, you're continually dealing with people who, through their own decision-making, have put them in this scenario. This is a way that this reality plays out. Uh, emotional. If we're continually feeding ourselves with things that create negative emotional reality, now sometimes it comes on us from the outside, but, but there are choices we can make related to what we expose ourselves to and feed ourselves that can affect our long-term emotional health. Spiritual. What do you feed yourself in a spiritual way? Or maybe you just starve that part. You see, this is why it's so important to have a daily Bible and prayer routine. And we make fun of that sometimes. That doesn't earn you heaven. Well, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. It doesn't. But you need something in your life that will take you again on a consistent basis to where you will grow spiritually. 
Let's look at it corporately. How can it impact us? How do these words, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. How can that impact us as a people? Well, in our practice, for one thing. One of the things that, that is, I think sometimes we're prone to it, is we're very advantaged by having Sabbath. But one of the disadvantages that sometimes comes to us, I think, as Adventists, is we tend to group all our spirituality into 24 hours. And we don't make decisions at other times as a community to engage in spiritual interaction. And because we tend to be more, uh, more intellectual than emotional and more theological than spiritual, we don't by nature just share our hearts. We don't by nature just come up to one another and say, let's pray. Oh, there's some of us that do, but many don't. And our practice can produce fruit that we might not want. Another way that this is true is in our expectation. What do we expect God to do in his church? Do we expect it just kind of rolls along and it's no big deal? Or do we literally expect that God will fill his people with the power of the Holy Spirit? And do we take steps along that road? Galatians 6 verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The saddest scenario is the person who is known in the community as someone to love, but known in their own family as cruel and a tyrant. This is the context God has given us where we can love one another. It's so fascinating every time we talk about the Holy Spirit, how often it ends up in this message of how important it is for us to love one another within the community of faith. So let me ask you. We closed the last couple of weeks. I gave you a challenge. I gave you a challenge to think of a difficult relationship and to reach out and try to do something to fix that relationship. I'm not expecting anybody to raise your hand, but did you do that? Did you spend time thinking about that? I want to invite Laura and the, and the rest of our singers and violinists to come up. Why did I bring that up? Well, because for one thing, so often this reality that the presence of the Holy Spirit will impact us in a way that will reestablish relationships. For another thing, it is that unforgiveness in our hearts sometimes that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what God wishes to pour upon us. I told you we're going to do things a little different next Sabbath. It's not going to be crazy, so don't let Holy Spirit paranoia keep you away. But we're going to do a little more praying in the service than we usually do. 
And we're going to have a little more participation than we usually have. And the purpose and the expectation and the intent is that God in some way will impact us both personally and corporately. And we don't want to enter into this uh, unprepared. There'll be some people who are here who, who are not. But the more of us that are, I think the better we will be ready for whatever blessing the Lord has. And this is the reason that uh, we showed you that number at the beginning. Let's put that up again. That you can text, uh, text the word pray to this number because all week long the prayer ministry folks in this church are going to be helping us to prepare ourselves for next Sabbath. Probably we ought to do something like this all the time. But it's hard to maintain. Let's at least invest ourselves this week. So we have that number? Yeah, there's the number. Text pray to that, and you will get your messages that will allow you to participate and be a part of this. And it will help you next Sabbath to come with your heart open. It'll help you to be ready with your confessions and apologies already made. And maybe it'll even help you with your expectations of what God wants to do. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not smart enough. We're not clever enough. We can't just trust what they believed, and we can't just trust what we experience. We've got to walk this journey. But the Father promised to send us His Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed we need your Holy Spirit. Send your spirit and help us. In Jesus' name, amen.